So our reading today is from 2 John, the elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. Um, well, good morning. I'll say good morning to you properly now. Uh, it's great to, to be here this morning, and um, I guess well done for making it. Like, it was very warm yesterday, wasn't it? So um, it wasn't conducive to a good night's sleep. And if you're like me, and you're also a, um, a hay fever sufferer, um, it was doubly difficult. Um, so it's great to, uh, to see you all this morning. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, and as has been said already, so I, I work for a ministry called True Freedom Trust. Um, a few different arms to that ministry. I've talked about the, the sort of pastoral support that we offer already. Um, we do that in a few different ways. So uh, we offer one-to-one support for people who most commonly contact us uh, through our website. And we have sort of support groups scattered around the UK there's probably about 20 of them. A few of those are, are online. Um, my role, which I'm privileged to, to do, is I lead our speaking and teaching ministry. So as well as the volunteers that do our pastoral work, I've got a team of about eight or nine uh, volunteers that sort of travel around the UK and, and share something of their own stories in this area, um, as well as hopefully the, the hope that the gospel has um, for those who experience um, same-sex attraction. And sometimes we speak about gender identity as well. Um, and we also produce some resources, some of which will be somewhere on a table on your way out. Um, so I'll just highlight them very briefly, and then I won't talk about TFT again. Um, so there's a little square getting involved leaflet that just introduces who we are and what we do. Um, there's a recommended resources leaflet, and this is kind of broken down by topic. So if you hear something I say today and you think, well, actually, I really want to find out more about, you know, what does singleness look like or what does friendship look like? Um, plenty of, of recommended books and podcasts and things like that on there. And then um, finally, we have a, a quarterly magazine called Ascend, which is usually based around the topic. This one's sort of encouraging single leaders. Um, so I'll do pick those up. They are free. It makes my car lighter on the way back, which means lower fuel expenses, hopefully. Uh, so do pick those up and take them with you. Um, I just want to say kind of up front as we get going that I'm acutely aware of how like, sensitive and emotive uh, conversations around sexuality and gender can get. Um, I think it's really important to remember that we're not just dealing with theological arguments, we're, we're dealing with people, and we're dealing with complex emotions. Um, there are people 
probably in the room today that are affected by this subject in all sorts of different ways. Maybe you know somebody, they're a relative or a friend, someone you love um, that experiences same-sex attraction. Um, perhaps you're somebody who experiences same-sex attraction yourself and you've not shared that with, with anybody yet. Um, the reason I can kind of say that with such confidence is because actually for the longest time in the church, that was me. Um, I was a Christian for six years before I decided to share about my own same-sex attraction uh, with a Christian friend of mine, and it was probably a good four years after that um, that I actually plucked up the courage to kind of open up to, uh, to my church leaders and share that bit of my, my testimony, my story with them. Um, so I'll share a little bit about that with you now, which surprisingly gets less terrifying the more you do it. Uh, but my same-sex attraction, it's something that I've known about since I was maybe eight or nine years old. Um, quite young, but not uncommon for somebody to know from that age. Um, and it just sort of happened, really. It sort of happened that I found myself more attracted to my male peers than my female peers. Um, and I was a teenager. I grew up in the, the noughties, if you want to call it that, um, 2000, 2010. Um, and that was a, a time when you very much did not tell your peers that you were gay, same-sex attracted, whatever term you want to use. Um, I was already this kind of pale, skinny, nerdy kid. You know, I wear glasses. I can't throw a ball for toffee. Uh, I didn't want to give anybody any reason to pick on me beyond what it kind of felt like they already had. So I just hit it, pushed it to the back of my mind, didn't interact with it, didn't tell anybody. Um, and when I became a Christian at the age of 18, I kind of did that with, maybe this was just RE lessons at school. I don't know where it came from. But I did that with the knowledge that it didn't feel like the Bible spoke too favorably of sort of same-sex sexual activity, same-sex uh, relationships. And I was aware of what you sometimes hear being called clobber passages, um, the passages that kind of explicitly prohibit same-sex sexual activity. There's sort of arguably six of those in Scripture. Um, but I just thought, well, do you know what? I can just keep doing what I have been doing this whole time. I can just hide my sexuality. I can just ignore it. I can just push it to the back of my mind. But for me, that turned out to really not be a good uh, long-term strategy. And there were a few reasons for that. I think the first is that churches can sometimes be really marriage-focused. Um, it can feel like marriage is sort of held up on this pedestal, like it's a rite of passage. It's something every Christian must go through to kind of enter the next stage of human flourishing. Um, actually, funny story, when I, was, when I was a little bit older in my first church, there was a, she, was, she was lovely, not talking ill of this lady at all. She was lovely and she was ultimately well-meaning. Uh, she was a lady that I used to uh, lead the youth ministry with when I was a little bit older. Um, but she kind of had this reputation as being the church matchmaker. Uh, every church has one. Um, and she was constantly trying to set me up with some of the other girls my age in the church. And it felt like she was saying to me, you know, Simon, you are one trip to cost a coffee away from a life of eternal married bliss. <laughs> And I just thought, oh, no. <laughs> and I became kind of pretty adept at wriggling my way out of meeting any of these people. Uh, but it kind of felt like the message I was hearing was, you know, single in your early 20s, well, that's normal. Everybody's single in their early 20s. Um, single in their mid-20s, eh, you should probably have a girlfriend around about now. And single in your late 20s, I think people were starting to wonder what was wrong with me. Um, but as well as that, I just, I remember this kind of struggle, having these two like seemingly contradictory sets of desires within me, one to, to love and, and serve the Lord and worship the Lord in the way I thought I should, in the light of what I read in the Bible, and the other to, to be in a same-sex relationship. Holding those two sets of desires together, that just felt like a really lonely struggle for me. Um, I remember thinking, you know, I must be the only person in the world that, that's struggling with this particular issue, um, how wrong I was. Um, 
But actually, kind of feeling lonely and feeling isolated, that only increases the temptation that we feel to do things that we don't want to do. And, you know, there's definitely been times that I went off and did things and I kind of later went on to regret. Um, friendships can be really complicated as well. And we often talk about the sort of sexual side of same-sex attraction, but there is a whole emotional, romantic side to things as well. Um, one of the most painful experiences for me, actually, of, of, of wrestling with my same-sex attraction was um, in my early 20s, sort of completely falling head over heels in love with a, a same-sex friend of mine. And I'd almost sort of set him up to be like a functional savior, like my entire sense of happiness depended upon my access to this person. And that's, that's probably not a healthy place to get into with anybody, regardless of the sort of sexuality, gender, um, etc. And it's kind of, it's, well, I guess also I just remember this, this overwhelming sense of thinking, you know, Lord, there must be more to it than this. Um, my first church, it was, it was quite a charismatic church. It often spoke about grace, the goodness of God to us. But as I've said already, I just felt like I was following a really legalistic Christianity, like I was just trying to follow those six prohibitions um, that we read in, in the Bible. And I didn't see how those prohibitions against same-sex uh, sexual activity fit into God's plans and his purposes for humanity. And that's what led to me kind of contacting TFT, and that catches you up with where we were in the interview. And that has been a, a huge source of blessing for me, just walking with those other people um, that are used to kind of sharing that burden, walking uh, that burden, bearing that, that particular cost to the discipleship. Um, and, you know, perhaps we'll kind of touch on some of the ways that I found that helpful as we kind of get into our teaching this morning. But I just want to turn our attention now to, to God's Word and our passage in this passage this morning, which was the, the whole of 2 John. Um, so as we get into that, I'll just quickly uh, pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your, for your great love for us, the fact that you long to be in relationship with us, and we thank you for the truth given to us through Scripture that, that tells us all that we need in order to be in relationship with you. Uh, Father, this morning, I just pray you would speak to us through your words, and um, yeah, just guide us as we seek to live um, in your love in accordance with the truth of Jesus. Amen. Great. Um, so you might be thinking, you know, Simon, I thought you were here to, to speak to us this morning about sexuality, and 2 John seems to have absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, and in one sense, you are absolutely right. Um, but I do think that 2 John kind of it helps us out with a particular question that I think the church is wrestling with a lot at the moment, nationally. And the question goes something like this. It's isn't it kind of unloving to tell people that God doesn't want people to experience, say, that God doesn't want people to experience same-sex attraction to act on their sexual and romantic desires? Isn't it unloving to tell people that God doesn't want them to act upon their desires? Um, there's this idea that perhaps if we share the, the biblical truth that the church has always believed about sex and relationships with somebody who is struggling in this area, then we're coming across as unloving, perhaps because we're not accepting them for who they truly are. And um, we somehow think that there's this um, dichotomy that somehow uh, sort of truth and love are two mutually exclusive things. We can't possibly exercise both when we're thinking about this topic. And I think too, John is actually here to, to tell us that we're only living out our faith authentically when we're walking in both truth and love and exercising those things at the same time. Um, so I understand um, from my chats with Pete that as a church, you've, you've recently been looking at 1 John. Not sure if we all remember that. A few sort of nods. Pete's looking a bit nervous. 
<laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to just remind us of the, uh, the background. Um, 2 John is essentially, it's a very short, only 13 verses, a pastoral letter that picks up on some of the themes that you will have heard about in 1 John. Uh, it's a letter that is commonly believed to have been written by the Apostle John. Here he refers to himself as the elder, somebody who is, is looking after a church or a group of churches. And he writes to, he says, the lady chosen by God and her children, whom, verse 1, he loves in the truth. So I don't want to get us started off on the wrong foot. This isn't like a, a love letter that John is writing to a particular individual. Um, the elect lady here is, is almost certainly a church congregation. Um, and we know that because much of 2 John in the kind of the older Greek manuscripts is, is written in second person plural. And all that means is when he says you, he basically means you all. Um, and actually, the, the, the idea of this church, of the church being portrayed as a lady, that's nothing new. Um, you know, the word for church in Greek, it's a feminine word. Um, we see many references to the church being described as the bride of Christ. But like 1 John, uh, this letter is written into a particular situation where the churches are being deceived by false teachers. Um, 1 John was essentially a round robin that was sent to several churches on that particular matter, and 2 John is being sent to one church in particular. And the false teachers we see in verse 7 are denying that Jesus came in the flesh. That's the context into which John is writing this letter. And he writes to encourage and sort of stress the importance to this church of, of walking in truth and love in the face of this opposition. So uh, three things I want to draw out from my text this morning, and I'm already behind on my slides. Oh, you've been, thank you. You've been going along with me. Thank you very much. Um, the first thing I want us to see is that truth and love are inseparable. Truth and love are inseparable. Uh, look with me at verses one to three, which are, which are up on the screen on the right-hand side. Um, John's writing to this church and its members, and he says that this is a church whom he loves in the truth. So he loves this church in the truth. And actually, it turns out it's not just him who loves this church in the truth, but it's everybody who knows the truth that loves this church. So what on earth is he talking about here? What does he mean when he says, in the truth? We get a few clues to that. Uh, I think the first of these we actually see in the second verse, which says that the truth that he's referring to is, is one that lives in us and will be with us forever. It doesn't seem to just be talking about some kind of mere knowledge. There's a sense in which this truth is indwelling and lives within us. Um, John has used this sort of language before. Um, so this is the same John uh, from John's Gospel. And uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, we see Jesus described as the truth. And actually, later in the very same chapter, in verse 20, we read that Jesus lives in his followers, and his followers live in him. Obviously, remember those, those false teachers in 2 John that we've already talked about. They are teachers that are not acknowledging Jesus' coming in the flesh. And that's something that puts them outside of the truth. So when John's talking about being in the truth, he's talking about those that know Christ for who he really is. And actually, it's quite astonishing. The sort of effect of being in the truth means that John, this church, all the other churches that he's talking to, sort of automatically belong to like a community of love, uh, a love for one another. It's really quite astonishing. If you are somebody who is in the truth, you automatically belong to a community of love with all the other people that are 
in the truth. And I think thinking about sort of sexuality, thinking about gender, I think it's really interesting that John frames how he relates to this church based on whether they are in the truth or not. There's a particular love that he extends to people who are in the truth. Um, and that's a, it's a really important question in John's mind, you know, is this church in the truth or not? And that's going to frame how I relate to them. Now, I'm not saying um, that John wouldn't love somebody who wasn't in the truth, and we're going to get to that um, a little bit later on. But the way he loves them is a particular one. And I think there's a really important lesson here for the way in which the church relates to and loves LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or same-sex attracted people. And essentially, a church in its, in its history, sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of moralized to people who belong to those communities who are outside of the church. It's sort of thought that, you know, who they are um, having sex with, who they are in a relationship with, you know, that is the most pressing problem. And it's, it's almost trying to kind of beat them about the head with the Bible almost, to rebuke them for a particular set of sins, a particular set of sins that they are involved in. But actually, from 2 John, we kind of read that that's not the most important thing. The most important thing about a person or a church is whether or not they are in the truth. So for the person who perhaps is in a same-sex relationship and is outside the church, the fact that they are in that relationship is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they don't yet know Jesus. And I think, you know, where, where the church has kind of moralized in the past, where it has beat people over the heads, um, it's, it's often been guilty of not offering them any hope, which is something we've, we've talked about already. Um, a person outside the church who is same-sex attracted is not going to have any motivations to follow the commands of Jesus unless they know who he is, unless they know why it's worth doing it. And actually, verse 3 reminds us that there is a particular blessing for those that are in this community of, of love and truth. Um, John takes this, this pattern. We see it actually quite a lot in, in New Testament letters where the writers sort of state their desire that the reader should experience grace and peace which comes from God. But John, he does something a little bit different, uh, mixes it up a little bit, and he reassures this church um, that if they are a church that abides in truth and love, they are going to receive those blessings. He doesn't just wish it upon them. He says, if you do this, if you're part of this, you will receive those blessings. And he actually keeps that communal theme going because he includes himself as somebody that will be a recipient of these blessings. So it's really important that when we're talking to people, when we want people to be living in truth and love, which is the most important thing, that's what we should be encouraging people towards. We don't lose track of the fact that if we do that, we receive grace, mercy, and blessings from God. Um, but the second thing I want us to see from the text is that truth and love are things that are active. Uh, look with me at verses 4 to 6. Here John continues sort of expressing his delight at finding some of the members of this church, which is what he means by children, uh, walking in the truth. That is believing the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, as was commanded by the Father. And now, verse 5, he comes with a specific request for them. He says, And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. So John is making it super clear that he's not asking the church to do anything new. He's simply asking them to do what they should have been doing all along. The exact reasons for this in this passage um, we don't particularly know, but he does further define what he means 
in verse 6 by saying that to love people is to walk in obedience to God's commands. That might sound like a really strange way of how we love one another, isn't it? We, we show love for one another by following God's commands. Um, it's quite different to perhaps what our surrounding culture, what 21st century Britain says it ought to look like to, to love one another today. Um, it's a nice little thing you can do on Google. Probably most of you know this. You can basically use Google as a dictionary. Just do define colon, tap your word in, and it will throw back a, a definition for you. And if you do that with love... It comes back with the definition, an intense feeling of deep affection. That's if you're doing it as a noun. Um, If you're doing it as a verb, it comes back with to feel a deep affection for. Um, That's really not what the Bible seems to be asking us to do when it's asking us to love one another. It's not to simply just hold one another in a sense of affection. But actually, you know, the Bible, it consistently takes a different approach as to what it means to to love one another. It's not about feelings. It's one that's driven and dominated by practical action and encouragement. Um, In Matthew 22, uh, Jesus' disciples, they come to him and they ask him what the most important commandment is. And he replies quite famously by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And this is likely the commandment from the beginning that John is referring to, the first commandment to to love God. And Jesus gives us a second commandment as well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I always find what's really interesting about this, it's actually Jesus is quoting the holiness codes. He's quoting Old Testament law when he's giving these instructions. Specifically, he takes the part about loving God from Deuteronomy 6, and he takes the part about loving our neighbor from Leviticus 19. And Leviticus 19, the irony isn't lost on me that it's sandwiched between two chapters of the Bible that contain prohibitions about sexual conduct, including two of those clobber passages that I mentioned earlier that explicitly prohibit same-sex sexual activity. So for followers of Christ to love one another, biblically speaking, it's not... It's not about passive tolerance. It's not necessarily about accepting everything that the other person is doing. It's about encouraging one another to keep going, to follow the Lord's commands, because actually it's doing that, particularly in this area of of sexual ethics, that enables us to contribute and continue in God's purposes for humanity. Um, One of the things that I found really helpful um, after I joined TFT and just exploring and digging deeper into what the Bible said about about sexual ethics, about um, same-sex attraction, is actually just starting from the very beginning and spending a little bit of time in Genesis and the creation accounts and just looking at what God says about how we're made and how he kind of automatically follows that with an instruction for what he wants us to go and do. So, of course, Genesis 2.24, that's, that's the place in the Bible that, that is often cited as the biblical definition of marriage. Um, that's the one that talks about um, you know, husband and wife, they, they leave their families, they come together as one flesh, they come together in sexual union. That's the verse that's quoted over and over again in the Bible, referring to what marriage ought to look like between those two partners who are the same, because they're both human, but they're different, because they're male and female, they're made differently. And it's fascinating, you know, in Genesis, we see that humanity is made in God's image, which gives everybody an inherent value, dignity, and worth. Everybody, regardless of whether they're in God or not, that is true of them. They have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Something else that's helpful for framing our conversations when we're relating to other people. 
but we're also made male and female. And it's sort of the being made in God's image that lets us serve as vice regents under God, that lets us uh, rule creation under him, that lets us steward his creation. But being made male and female is what allows us to fill the earth with other people who are walking in relationship with God that can help contribute towards that mission. And it was studying that that for me really made it click. I'm like, ah, hang on, there's a reason for, for those prohibitions being there, as well as just um, the marriage between male and female who are the same but different, reflecting the marriage between Christ and the church. Christ being kind of the same but different as well. The same in that he had a human nature, the difference in that he has a divine nature. But anyway, I completely digress. I was going to do that for a sermon for another time, but I digress. Um, my final point, um, just kind of in addition to, to what we've heard already, is that truth and love prevail Uh, John gives us another reason why it's important for us to walk in both truth and love in this area. Um, In verse 7, John says, he's saying this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. This is our final point. So truth and love prevail. How do they prevail? Well, we said earlier, one of the reasons that John has has written this letter is to urge the church to, to not be deceived by false teaching. Uh, The nature of this false teaching in in John's time, it's secessionist teaching. Um, It's teaching that essentially says that Christ did not uh, come in the flesh or Christ is not the Son of God. And that may not quite be the nature of some of the, the false teaching that's hitting the headlines in the church today, but it doesn't mean that we should let our guards down. It doesn't make John's advice to us here any less relevant. Um, It's no secret that professing Christians, people who claim to be following Christ, hold a sort of plethora of different positions when it comes to sexual ethics and same-sex attraction. I'll put a little chart up on the screen. There we go. Thank you very much. Um, So some say that sort of same-sex marriage and, and sex within it is something that is permissible. And others say that actually merely experiencing a pattern of temptations towards the same sex is sinful, And both of those positions are positions that I would disagree with. Uh, The Bible never teaches that temptations are in of themselves sinful. Of course, Jesus experienced temptations and yet did not sin. And for me, uh, I would define as sort of having having this sexual orientation as the pattern of temptations that I experience in this life. Um, I can grow in my ability to be able to resist those temptations by God's grace But actually changing those temptations to something else isn't something that we're necessarily promised in the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about us resisting uh, sin, not necessarily um, changing the the pattern of of temptation that we face. It's Proverbs, it's the adulterous woman, it's the don't go near its door, or don't go near her door, it's always going to be there. Um, But also I think the Bible is really consistent in in its teaching from Genesis to Revelation in saying that sex can only rightly take place in a male-female marriage. But the fact that we do have all these different views, that professing Christians do hold all these different views, presents us with a couple of significant problems. And the first problem is a repentance problem. So in order to come into relationship with Christ, we are called to repent and believe the gospel. And repent literally means to turn away from We turn away from our sin, we turn away from rebellion against God, and we turn to Christ. And the problem with all these viewpoints 
is that they draw the line of repentance in a different place. Which means what it actually looks like to follow Jesus looks different and is outworked differently depending on which of the viewpoints you hold. And it's really important we get what it means to repent right, because if we don't get it right, we risk altering the gospel itself. And the second problem is, is a harm problem. And what I mean by that is whichever of these views a person holds, what tends to happen as we're engaging with others is they see the other positions as being harmful in some way. So somebody who holds the, the sort of revisionist uh, column in the diagram above me, um, somebody who thinks same-sex marriage is okay, might look at me and my position and think, well, hang on, Simon, isn't your position harmful because you're denying yourself the chance to uh, have a, a sexual or romantic partner of your choosing? Isn't the cost of your discipleship something that's harmful? But, you know, I might look at somebody who believes uh, that the temptations are sinful in of themselves and I think, well, actually, in saying that, there's a risk that you're going to convince people that they're never good enough for God because they, these, these temptations are something that recurs. It's a recurring pattern. It's, a, as I say, it's an orientation. It's the, just the pattern the temptations take. And if they don't change, how are they going to feel before God? They're probably going to feel an immense amount of guilt, an immense amount of shame, like they can never measure up to God's standards. Pastorally, I think, um, that can be quite damaging. And I think actually the, the, the one thing that people on all sides of this conversation, this debate agree on, is that nobody wants to do anybody any harm. Um, of course, what that looks like are sort of working definitions of harm are the things that differ. And that's one of the things that, that makes um, this topic such an emotive one. Um, but one of the tactics, actually, that I think we see false teachers in this area use is they make it seem like communicating biblical truth in this area is unloving. And it's not unloving. Um, it's, the, it's just that we're working to, as I say, different definitions of what it means to love. And we've talked already about the sort of emphasis on Christian love being encouraging one another to follow the Lord's commands, and in doing so, we experience that grace, that mercy and peace in God that John talks about in verse 3. Um, Thomas Aquinas, he, he famously defined love as to will the good of another. And so the Christian, there's no greater way we can do that than to encourage them in their relationship with the Lord. But you've probably heard the phrase, like, love is love, right? That's, that's a phrase we hear quite a lot in the media uh, often used by those who do hold a revisionist view of the biblical teaching that, that same-sex marriage is permissible. And that can be something that sounds convincing because people who hold that position have rightly identified love as a really key theme of the gospel. Love is a good thing, but not in isolation from the truth. And we must be careful not to allow love to be defined by anything or anyone other than Jesus, who is the truth. I think John was really thinking of the church as a whole when he sort of says, you know, be careful that you don't lose everything that we have worked for. Um, you know, John was instrumental in building the church since the time of Jesus's ministry. And there was a very real danger that what was going on, the false teaching that was going on in the surrounding culture was jeopardizing that good work that he, the other disciples, faithful churches were doing. So in verses 10 and 11, he sort of gives this, this final instruction, this message, and it's quite a strong one. And he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning faithful teaching about Jesus and the gospel, do not take them into your house or welcome them. 
Anyone who does so shares in their wicked work. Now, I just want to say, uh, we note, he's only talking about teachers here. Um, And the reason, actually, he mentions houses is in part because many of the churches around at the time that this was written were house churches. So this is a message about not entertaining people who who teach false doctrine in our churches. Um, That doesn't mean that we break off all kinds of relationships with people that we know and love who maybe are same-sex attracted, maybe are in same-sex relationships, same-sex marriages. Instead, no, the message for them is that we long for them to come to know the truth and sort of experience the greatest love and acceptance of their lives in Christ. I think it's, it's quite helpful to remember people have this, this, this natural inclination to build their identity around the place where they, ex, where they experience the greatest love, the greatest intimacy, the greatest acceptance. And for some people, and probably me, if I hadn't have become a Christian at the age of 18, they're going to find that within the LGBT community. That's why these debates flare up so quickly. That's why they're so emotive. When the church kind of says that, well, actually, we don't think those relationships are, are right uh, before God, it can appear as though the church is attacking the place, the exact place where a person has encountered the greatest love, acceptance, and intimacy of their life so far. But, of course, we're doing it because we believe that we find the greatest love, intimacy, and acceptance of our lives in Jesus. So our job is very much just seed-sowing. You know, we get involved in people's lives. We show interest in their stories. We hear about how they found the greatest love, intimacy, and acceptance in the relationships and in the communities that we're in. And that allows us to share our our own stories about how we found that in Christ. And that's it. Our, our, Our job stops there. We continue to sow these seeds. And what happens next is between that person and God. We don't continue beating them about the head with Scripture Um, We let God grow those seeds. And we can't do that. We can't take part in that mission apart from being in personal relationship with people, showing them hospitality, showing um, an interest in them and a desire for their good. So just finally, um, John, he brings his letter to a close by longing to visit this church face to face so that his joy may be made complete, he says. And I'm sure um, he hopes that will be when he sees that they are putting his teaching into practice, walking in both truth and love. And it, it is, it's walking in truth that enables us to know who Jesus is and enables us to recognize that there are no real substitutes. You know, any intimacy that we experience with, with other people in this world is nothing compared to what we will experience with Christ in the age to come. And we're kind of blessed to, to get a little foretaste of that in our church relationships now. I talked about us being in a community of love. And actually, for me, as somebody who has chosen to remain single and celibate, owing to my faith convictions in this area, those brother-sister relationships in Christ are super important because they are the ones that matter. They are the ones that matter eternally. Eternally, it's not who we're married to. It's not who we're sleeping with. It's who else is in the truth. Who else is a brother and sister in Christ. And of course, it is love that enables us to keep going, to keep resisting sin, to keep being pulled, to keep us from being pulled off track by false teaching. And I kind of hope that through this letter, we can see that we don't have to choose whether to do truth and love in any particular situation. We can do both together because that is the situation that God set us in. We are in the truth and therefore we're in a community of love. Let's pray just to finish.
Uh, Father, there has been a, an awful lot to unpack this morning, and um, I do thank you that we're set in a community of, of brothers and sisters who prevent, and they prevent us from living um, in a place of, of costly discipleship on our own, as there is a cost to everyone in this room's discipleship. Um, I thank you that you, you give us relationships with other people that enable us to flourish, who encourages us to per, encourage us to persevere and to keep going. And Lord, I just pray you would help your churches um, in our nation to, to remain faithful to your word and just guide them against error. Just make them beacons of, of love and hope in the areas in, in which they serve. And for those of us here, um, just help us to love one another well. Um, just help us to encourage one another and just help us to grow in increasing love and knowledge of you. For your glory we ask. Amen.